0: Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. My guests come from all walks of life and are people who get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not so distant past. The jumping off point is where they become curious, That enter the rabbit hole into discovery. Some through scholarly research, others through pop culture, documentaries, and other podcasts. We look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to like and subscribe. It really does help to spread the word. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us at armchairhistorians.com. Armchair Historians is an independent podcast. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron through Patreon or buy us a cup of coffee through Kofi. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow armchair historians. Anne Marie here. Today I talk to Anna Borzello. Previously, she spent a decade in Uganda and Nigeria reporting for the BBC. These days, you can find Anna on the River Thames foreshore foraging for historical artifacts which tell the story of london's expansive history anna admittedly plans her life around the river's tides before she commits to doctor's appointments lunch dates fill in the blank she first consults the tide charts low tide wins out every time it was such a pleasure to talk to anna about her experiences as a mudlark along the Thames foreshore and I think you will see why not only is she well versed on London's history she is absolutely delightful Anna Borzello, welcome to Armchair Historians Thank
1: you very much. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: I'm thrilled to have you because you're going to be talking about one of my most favorite things in the whole entire world. So uh, we just really get right off into the races and I'm going to ask you the question. What is your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today?
1: We're going to be talking about mudlarking, which is, well, it's my hobby, but that doesn't really express what I feel about it enough. It's more like a way of life. And mudlarking is when I go down to the river and I search the exposed foreshore, which is the difference between low and high tide for objects that have been lost or dropped or dumped sometime in London's 2,000-year-old history. And I search for those objects and then I research them and somehow retrieve the past through investigating them.
0: So yeah, some of my listeners uh, who have been listening to me for a while have heard some of the other interviews I've done with mudlarks. They know that I'm obsessed. Jason Sandy, Fines, and the like. So that's really helpful that you kind of prefaced what it is that, that you do. It's specifically when you talk about mudlarking, you're
1: talking about the Thames. Well, I'm talking about the Thames, but it's really searching any tidal river for objects that have been lost in the mud. You're retrieving these objects from from the riverbed. So how did you get
0: involved in mudlarking? How did you find out about it? What was your evolution?
1: I, I grew up in London, and I've always been drawn to the Thames. And I spent a lot of time around the Thames when I was a teenager I remember dancing on the foreshore with friends when I was a teenager and being broken-hearted and seeking solace by the Thames. And at some point, the notion that there were objects on the foreshore entered my mind. But I'm still not clear when or how that happened. I had a chat with my dad, and he said at some point, maybe in the 80s, a friend took him down to the riverside and told him about clay pipe stems. And I think he told me, and that's maybe how the... Idea got embedded and then slowly evolved. In the 90s, 1999, there was a huge exhibition of mudlarked objects by an artist called Mark Dion at the Tate in London. And I remember going to that exhibition and thinking, I should really get down to the foreshore and start searching soon before everybody goes. But at the time, I was living in sub Saharan Africa. When I got back, I had kids and I'm a single parent, so I was watching them the whole time. And it was only eight years ago when the children were. Firmly in school that I thought now is the time just to follow that hunch and that instinct and go and discover what's on the foreshore. So I went down with a, a group, I think called the Thames Explorer Trust, who took groups down for a sort of like little look around. It was like an educational tour for three hours. And then from then on, I just took it like a job, really. Put on a pair of Wellington boots and parked the car. And every day I'd go down whenever I could to search the foreshore for objects. And it became, has become a, a way of life since then.
0: Would you say it's an obsession?
1: I think that nearly everyone who mudlarks would say it was an obsession. I mean, I, my life is really ruled by, time table, by the tide tables. So I get the tide tables. I work out, even before this interview, I worked out whether you clashed with a low tide. <laughs> and if you had, we would not be talking at this time. When I'm talking on the phone to the doctor, they'll say, oh, you yeah, know, there's an appointment at nine o'clock. And I'll just say, hold on, I just have to consult my diary. <laughs> and then I look up the tide tables because you never know if there's a really good low tide. You don't want to miss it. And I know that I'm not the only mudlark who thinks that way. Our, our holidays are also planned around tides. So it is the tide sort of begin to rule your life and then you discover other people in the community and your friendships grow and then these objects begin to take over your house and your mental space and your reading. So yes, it's it's an obsession. I think that's fair to say.
0: <laughs> well, and the way that I discovered you is I have been following Mudlarks for a couple of years now online. And of course, I watch uh, Nicola White do her YouTube videos and sci-fines and... I also love Jules' guides. And so, in the background of these videos, I see this woman and she catches my attention. And I notice that you are hanging out with all the cool kids in London. Those are the people that I would be hanging out with if I lived there. <laughs> and so, I was like, who is this person? And, you know, I started following you on Instagram and you have a great Instagram page. So, the one thing that we should probably talk about is that, and I'm not sure when they, st- they implemented this, but you can't just go to the foreshore and forage. You have to have what they call a foreshore uh, permit.
1: Well, when, when I started, which was late 2015, you could search if you were just looking with your eyes alone. If you wanted to disturb the surface in any way, you needed a license. And then in 2017, that was changed. The Port of London Authority, who regulates all that all the all the foreshore, said "No, if you have to have a license for any form of searching, and at the time there were only two hundred licenses there's been a massive boom in the popularity of mudlarking. there's now five thousand licenses issued in fact, there's so many licenses issued that they've been temporarily suspended, so it's not possible to get new ones you can you can use a license you've got or renew an old one, but for the moment they're evaluating what's happening and trying to work out the best way to to ensure that the foreshore is protected. The, the vast majority of us are very respectful of the foreshore, and we all love what we do. And it really matters to us. And we feel like we're saving history, a lot of us. It's not just for ourselves. It feels like you're recovering London's history. So we we hope that whatever the resolution is, is, is beneficial for, for all.
0: Well, it seems reasonable. It does seem reasonable that they're doing that. I'm just grateful that I did get my permit back in 2000, and I think it was 19, and it's coming up for, I have to renew it. Actually, it expires while I'm in London in May, so I just need to keep that up so that I don't lose that option. Now we know a little bit about mudlarking, and we know a little bit about your evolution, about how you got into it. Can you tell me about, you know, something particular, a find, or a particular grouping of objects that you're especially interested in, and can you tell us the history about those things
1: I can it's quite complicated because i I sort of love all my objects <laughs> I think of them in two kinds of categories. there are the objects which connect to a particular person, so for example, the traders' tokens that you get that were issued in the middle of the seventeenth century when shopkeepers were able to use the Royal Mint to basically get little tokens that they could use for small change and make their mark on them. And when you get one of those tokens, you can discover who the person that issued them was, who the person was that had that token issued, and where they lived and what they did. And you research them. I found one recently. He was a Quaker. He was imprisoned. He had a wife called Anna. And these people come back to life for a moment. Mm -hmm. It's like you pull them out of the, the the mud and you say, you know, these people were long gone, these ordinary people, and now they live again for this brief moment. And then there's another category of objects which I like because for me they bring the past alive in a way that my history lessons never could. I, I actually studied history at, we have to specialise in, in England from 16 to 18, and history was one of the subjects I chose. And it for some reason history never came alive for me. It was like looking at shadows on the wall. The people weren't real. I couldn't connect with their emotions. I couldn't imagine what their lives were like. And yet when you find, for example, dress pins, of which I have 15,000. In fact, I have them near me somewhere. Oh, here they are. I'm going to shake them. You can hear them in the little jug here. 15,000 dress pins. When you find those and you begin to wonder why they're there, and then you realize as you find them that these were objects that were the part, the furniture of the past for hundreds of years, London has lived with these pins and these pins weren't the kind of throwaway who cares about the items that we have now. In the 15th century, these pins were so valuable because the metal that they were made out of was quite hard to come by that they were actually bequeathed in wills. And I worked out that you could 100 pins would buy you 33 sheep the same amount of money. That's how valuable they were. And then metal became more available and the price went down. Uh, But they were still really important items. There were trade wars over them, big arguments with the French over them, people trying to regulate their quality. Queen Elizabeth I of England had a royal pin maker. You know, Her clothes were completely held together by these objects. She had, I think, her most elaborate dress had 10,000 pins keeping it together. Then you realise she needed to have servants to keep them together. Then you realise that whenever she moved, maybe she was pricked. And you think about these people in the past, the irritation of having those pins come loose and pricking your skin and that you must have had those pins on your dressing table and you'd need a servant to pin you into your clothes. So somehow through these little tiny objects, the the, the feeling of what it was like to live in certain periods of history comes alive and i find that really fascinating also actually pins are, are amazing because they've gone from being a really high value item to being a really low value item and when you trace that you get this whole sort of economic evolution as well you can basically trace the history of england for 600 years through this little tiny common object so these different sorts of objects and different categories of objects speak to me in in different in different ways. That's amazing. I love the way you describe that.
0: I've heard of the pins. I didn't find any when I was there last year, but how do they end up in the Thames? So many of them. Is it just because, you know, they're precariously held into place and then they fall off of your skirts or how does that work?
1: I think first of all, there were loads of them around. So there are loads of them though everybody had them they were such a common object that you know by the 19th century 18th century there were factories i mean workshops in britain producing them britain was a great producer of pins people would they were just falling out of clothes and then they were falling out of clothes on the street and then the water drains they were flowing down onto the river you know along with the rivulets of water coming down and through the drains. so they just gathered and then the river sorts by weight So it'll sort all the pins into various sections. So if you find one pin, you're going to find a load of other pins in the same area. Oh, wow. So what
0: would you say is your most precious find to date?
1: It's really hard for me to answer that question because I'm attached to so many of my finds. I often remember the sort of joy of finding them and that's like mixed in with the object itself. So I I don't think that I can select. Whenever I do select, I often choose my my collection of pins just because of all the labour that went into finding them. At the moment, I'm really taken by something I found two months ago just because it was so unusual. I mean, nobody else seems excited by it. It's a little object made out of pipe clay, and it's round, and it's a mould, and it's got initials on it, and it was used to imprint you know, to imprint in something and to leave this seal, someone's initials. But I don't know what it was used for. But through investigating it, I had to go through the whole idea of whether it was a seal for a glass bottle or whether it was a maker's mark on pottery. And then I got led down this whole path of maybe it was used to decorate cakes and biscuits and marzipan and butter in the 18th century when they were crazy about decorating their food. And so that really appealed to me because it was just a little avenue I hadn't been down. So I'm not, I can't really choose a favourite item. I can also say that yesterday I was sent something by a friend and it turned out that one of my finds had been put in a book of the portable antiquity scheme and it was chosen of one of the objects that had been found that was of interest in that year. I'm really interested in clay pipes which litter the foreshore, and I've got very many of them. And this particular clay pipe stood out to me because it didn't make sense. It didn't fit the typography, and it also didn't have a – it wasn't made of the same white hard clay. And it turned out to be of Native American design. And really? I found it in central London, yeah. And it's really bizarre. When I put it on a clay pipe Facebook page, the Americans went crazy. They were so excited. I got this this little pipe in England. It was so bizarre. They don't turn up in England at all often. It was very unusual, which is why it ended up in this uh, being uh, 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 being selected in, in, in this year. And it's because I think partly because the clay is not very good quality. So it's friable and it would break. But I imagine that what happened was sometime in the 17th century, some sailor was in colonial you know, Jamestown. And he got this pipe and he got on a boat and came back to England. They got swept overboard with the rubbish. and ended up here. But what's interesting about it is apparently it's a mix of two Native American designs. So it must have been a time when maybe different groups were converging in the town centre and those influences were changing as sort of a mishmash of different designs. So I really like that. It's really interesting.
0: So tell me, uh, tell us for my listeners that that don't know, tell me about the clay pipes and what they are and why they're so plentiful.
1: So clay pipes are kind of magical objects. They're basically the cigarette ends of yesteryear. So no one's going to get excited by a horrible little filter that you find today or even vapes, which unfortunately litter the foreshore today. But the clay pipes are beautiful. They're like bones. They're so hard. The the white clay, and they are—they were basically disposable, throwaway cigarettes. Since used in England from about 1580, so Sir Walter Raleigh went off to the Americas and discovered the um, uh, Native American smoking tobacco there, brought it back to England, and introduced it to the court. And it took off. And at the beginning, the little clay pipes we had here were very small because tobacco was expensive, and as a uh, tobacco became more plentiful unfortunately because of the slave trade and that the price went down and the clay pipe bulbs get bigger and soon everybody was smoking in england they were smoking you know young people were smoking and old people women children were smoking and you often get these clay pipes on the foreshore at points where people congregate i sort of think of it as like when people get on the bus and they put out their cigarette and they grind under their feet so you might get it outside taverns or on a ferry point you might get a lot of these old clay pipes and the waves and actually as the waves go in and out the clay pipes bang against each other and they make a tinkling sound it's rather beautiful they're sort of like old but they're like very beautiful white bones and there's also this amazing chiming sound as they move through the waves
0: oh that's interesting I've never heard of that they are very strong I did find a couple when I was there and I found one of the really old ones with the small bowl it was pretty broken up though but i've never heard that about them making that sound
1: well it, it's only when there's a lot of them in the, so it used to be that you'd get very very many of them and now as there uh, many more mudlocks, so have less pipes around yeah but still on a low tide when even the little pipe stems tinkle in the water it's a lovely sound
0: mm, it sounds like it would be okay so you can't pick your favorite child <laughs>
1: I can't pick my favourite child, but I have, a, I have just, I, yeah, I have too many of them. I get very excited by my finds. So what I love about these finds is you get them, you get excited by the process of finding is exciting and then you take it home and then you clean it up and photograph it and then research it and then maybe put it on a Facebook page, like for example, the clay pipe Facebook page and people chime in and they tell you a little bit about the history of that object. And by the end, you've built up a little window into a little part of the past. And over time, you get this really intriguing view of the past as viewed through these objects that you found on the foreshore. Can I see your shelves? Will
0: you show them to me? Uh, 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 oh, wow. That's amazing. Do you ever have to get rid of things? Or how do you like keep collecting these things?
1: I collect these objects. And then I choose the ones I like the best and put them on the shelves. I sort them out. I've got loads of beads here. I must have about a thousand beads. So the beads go into the bead section, the marbles into the marble section. I've got a a selection of false teeth here. Oh my
0: word. Let me see.
1: (gasps) Oh my goodness. She's not even kidding. She has
0: false teeth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Those are, I mean, there's a whole intro, you know, who knew about false teeth? These false teeth were, these look like NHS issues. So they'd be post 1950. I got I, I I dread to think how those ended up on the Thames. Maybe they were flushed down the toilet. And then you get the older kind here, which is vulcanite rubber, which is from the late Victorian times, late 19th century. I mean, these are really unpleasant.
0: I can't see and them. And then,
1: of course, oh, well, it's, it's a much harder sort of rubber. It's got a weird texture to it, like old ham. That's how I think <laughs> about it. It's very attractive. And then, of course, you end up researching the... The history of false teeth, and realise that there's this incredible history that goes right back to Waterloo teeth, which is when the, the people would go off to the battlefield at the Battle of Waterloo and pull teeth from the mouth of the dead, then oh. take them back to the dentists in London who could use them as false teeth, you know, of high quality for those who could afford it in Britain. So it's sort of intriguing how these things evolve. Every find takes you on a little journey like that. Yeah. Anyway, you asked me what I do, so I tend to sort things out. You can see, but your listeners can't, that I've got an assortment here of pottery that's been marked with the fingerprints of the potter. Can you see that? Yes. So that's the thumb mark of someone from 500 years ago, and you can slip your finger into the little depression that they've made and feel feel the past that way, feel their finger marks. But then every so often I'll I'll go to the foreshore and think, I don't know why I've picked up this stuff, and I'll put it in a bag, and then I just take it back. And I do try and take it back to a place that's appropriate. So I wouldn't dump a load of Victorian stuff in an area that normally throws up Georgian artefacts, because that would just be, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. And at the moment I actually have a whole bag in the car. It's quite heavy, and it's all mixed up of stuff, and I have an idea of where I'm going to, to drop it. And then oh, hopefully someone will find some of the objects. That is interesting. It feels right to to bring it back. Yes. I mean, I suppose, I suppose theoretically you could put it in the garbage because it, it's in the Thames because it's trash. So in a way, if you put it in the trash, it's going to end up in another trash place, <laughs> you know, inland. But I still feel that it's if you take it from the river, you should put it back to the river. And I know I'm not the only one that feels that way. But um, yeah, I will take it back. So that's what I do with excess objects. And so, for example, I've got loads of pipes and there's hundreds here. I don't know if you can see them. Yeah, I do. And with those pipes, I tend to swap them out. So if I get a long pipe, I'll take a less long pipe and put that one back.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I love that.
1: But then there's also a pleasure, not just in the history of the objects, but there's 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 a pleasure in collecting things. So I do like the accumulation of objects like the accumulation of these marbles here say or these tesserae or these buttons and there's something that i like i think what i like about the accumulation is that they accumulate because there were so many of them and so the fact that there's so many of them is because they were part of everybody's life at this particular period of history so again it brings back into my it brings back into my imagination the idea that these objects were part of someone's world that in Victorian Britain everybody would use that stoneware for example you know that would have been common you'd have had ink on your table in a stoneware bottle
0: you know one of the things you've talked about which I think is the thing it's that tangibility of touching the past and who was the last person that held that item in their hand and it fell away from them and this is the first time it's like it's almost like being in a time machine right like to to be able to touch that history and imagine it and you have a very good imagination the way that you've drawn out some of you know the ideas about the pins for example that was amazing and um you know it just it does seem like it takes a special not a special but a certain kind of person to appreciate that We're going to stop here for today, but be sure to join us next week for part two of my interview with Anna Borzello. In the meantime, be sure to check out our episode notes to find out more about Anna and mudlarking and how to support the show. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week. Armchair Historians is produced by Belgian Rabbit Productions. Hosted by Anne-Marie Cannon. Music this week is Strings by Gold Tiger. Sound editing and design by Anne-Marie Cannon.